0: Love minus zero, no limit. That's Bob Dylan from the 1965 Newport Folk Festival, the Saturday afternoon workshop uh, when he was still acoustic. And on the phone with me now is Elijah Wald, author of the new book, Dylan Goes Electric, Newport, Seeger, Dylan, and the Night That Split the 60s. Hello, Elijah.
1: Hi. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Oh, my pleasure. There's a lot of revelations in your book, and one of them is... Pete Seeger's influence on Dylan over Woody Guthrie. And, and in fact, you devote a lot of the time in your book to Pete Seeger. Why is that?
1: Well, I wouldn't say he necessarily personally influenced Dylan more than Woody did. But (laughs) Dave Van Ronk, who was sort of my mentor and and one of Dylan's mentors, used to refer to Pete Seeger as the man who invented my profession. And that's kind of true. I had originally, when I was writing the book, planned to sort of do a a general history of what the folk revival had looked like up to 1960 when Dylan shows up in New York. And then I realized that I could do that whole history just by doing a biography of Pete Seeger, and that that really makes sense, because all the different strands of the folk revival come straight through Pete, um, with the Weavers in 1950 when they had a number one hit with Goodnight Irene, That set the stage for all the pop folk groups, you know, the Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary. But that same year, he released a record called Darlin' Corey, which was the first record where anyone from the city, from the north, ever listened to old records and learned how to play old-style banjo like they were on the old records, which, you know, has essentially become what people have done ever since, when they want to learn traditional music, but that's the first time. And also, of course, he was the leading figure in the political folk singing movement. So I just felt like to give people a sense of what the world looked like, there was no better way to give them a sense of who Pete Seeger was.
0: It's also important, you mention in the book, the integrity Pete Seeger has because he represented, let's say, the the purity of the music, of of the non-commercial aspect of it.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, Pete Seeger was a symbol for people of personal integrity, and Dylan very much included. And the music was part of it, but for a lot of people, even more part of it was the way he had stood up to the anti-communist witch hunt. I mean, in a world where literally everybody either had been testifying in front of the committee or had been taking the Fifth Amendment and refusing to testify on the grounds that it might incriminate him, Pete Seeger took a completely unique stance and stood up and said, the First Amendment gives us freedom of speech, and that includes the right not to talk about what I don't want to talk about, and I'm not going to talk about this with you. And he was indicted for contempt of Congress, and at the moment that Dylan arrived in New York, he was still looking at potentially 10 years in prison.
0: Pete Seeger was also on the first board of directors of the Newport Folk Festival, and that came out as an offshoot of the Newport Jazz Festival.
1: Right. Well, actually, in 1959 and 1960, uh, they had done the Newport Folk Festival pretty much just as an offshoot, with Albert Grossman, actually, who later was Dylan's manager, booking it. But in 1963, they started over.
0: Why? Why What happened in those two years?
1: Um, Well, first of all, what had happened was the Newport Jazz Festival in 1960, there was a riot, and Newport revoked the festival's licenses. So it took a couple of years to get things going again. And when they got things going again, um, George Ween, who was the festival director, felt like he wanted to do something that would be really different, and he went to Pete and to Pete's wife, Toshi, who they had this really interesting idea because in 1960, he had told the festival, don't pay me and use the money you would have paid me to bring in a French-Canadian fiddler named Jean Carignan. And they had the idea, suppose all the stars did that. And that was the idea of the Newport Folk Festival, that Peter Paul and Mary and Joan Baez and Pete Seeger and Theodore Bikel, and all the known figures would work for virtually nothing. And that would leave the festival with a huge audience and enough money that they could bring in people that nobody had ever heard of. Those people were people, you know, who we now all have heard of, like Doc Watson and Mississippi John Hurt, but they appeared for the first time at Newport in 63.
0: Also, uh, reading in your book, it revived the Cajun uh, music revival here in the country.
1: Absolutely. Cajun music was completely a dying thing, even in Louisiana And they brought a Cajun band to Newport, and they went home, and the people back home went, really, they liked that up in New York? (laughs) But also the Newport Festival used their leftover money to fund festivals all over the country, and they funded the first Cajun music festival in Louisiana.
0: Back in the early 60s, what kind of festivals were there?
1: Well, you know, there were a few Festivals like Newport Jazz Festival. There'd been a couple of bluegrass festivals down south, and there'd been a couple of folk festivals that like Southern universities would do, of, but strictly of local artists. Nothing like a big national folk festival, and there'd been nothing like a rock festival.
0: How did rock exist at the time?
1: Rock at that point was still pretty much, you know, it was music for teenagers to dance to. Mm-hmm. It, it was very much thought of in, as, a, as a strictly commercial pop, Stuff that everybody would grow out of by the time they were old enough to go to college.
0: Now getting back to the Newport Folk Festival, Pete Seeger was uh the Board of Directors and Albert Grossman, uh he was you mentioned he was Dylan's manager, but he was no longer involved in the board of directors.
1: Right. No, very much not. By by that moment he was the manager, first of all, of Peter, Paul and Mary. And mm. he was viewed as the guy who was like the current entrepreneur. Um I refer to him as the snake in the garden. Um, You know, people viewed him as the guy who was trying to turn this pure, personal, meaningful thing into dollars.
0: Well, the the big term back in the early 60s was selling out, and it seemed like everybody ignored that when it came to Albert Grossman.
1: Well, no, a lot of people hated him for exactly (laughs) that. And, uh, you know, this is one of the funny things that happened, is that what you just said is exactly right, but in before... You know, when I refer to the book, when I say the night that split the 60s, it's really because not Dylan changed everything, though he changed a lot, but because there's this real split in 1965, and everything that we think of as the 60s is after 1965. You know, the hippies, the drugs, don't trust anybody over 30, the war in Vietnam is just starting. And before 1965, yeah, I was watching film of the March on Washington, Martin Luther King, and and Joan Baez and Dylan played there. And it's a protest march, and everyone's in suits and ties. It was just a different world.
0: It seems like Albert Grossman took advantage of the naivete of all the folk artists because he saw big money. He saw money in his eyes.
1: Yeah, but he was a genius. And, you know, before that, there had been plenty of money. I mean, the Kingston Trio had made a fortune, mm-hmm. but they had always been managed by people who weren't in the folk scene, and the people in the folk scene didn't respect them. And Grossman's genius was to make a fortune while at the same time, you know, maintaining his artist. You know, for example, he was somebody who was making a fortune, but understood that it made sense for his artist to go to Newport for nothing because it was important to be part of that.
0: In your book, you talk a lot about Robert Shelton, who wrote a review of Bob Dylan. How instrumental was Robert Shelton in Bob Dylan's career?
1: You know, that's a really interesting question. Um, I had no idea how often he would come up in this project, and after a while it begins to feel almost like a conspiracy. He wrote the first review of Dylan for the New York Times. He then, under a pseudonym wrote the liner notes to Dylan's first album, and during an interview at that period, Dylan told the interviewer that he was spending his afternoons practicing piano at Robert Shelton's house. He then, under a pseudonym, edited the program for the Newport Folk Festivals and kept putting Dylan incredibly front and center. In in 1963, virtually no one knew who Dylan was, but the program starts with a two-page poem by Dylan and a huge picture of him. So, yeah, I think that, you know, who knows what was all going on there. Robert Shelton is no longer with us, and I couldn't ask him. But I think for him, as for a lot of people, Dylan really was everything he had dreamed a folk singer might be. He was this young guy who came out of the middle of nowhere. He sounded like a real authentic folk singer. He didn't have a pretty voice. And he was writing these amazing songs that kind of summed up what a lot of people were feeling.
0: So leading up to the uh, 65 festival, the 60s, 60, the 60, 61, 62 festival was canceled and it came back in 1963. Your book paints that festival as like an idealistic festival. Everyone is in it for the same reason. You just paint such a pretty picture of the Newport 63 festival.
1: Absolutely. And and Dylan is the center of that. And, you know, the iconic image from that festival is Dylan on stage, arm in arm with Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and Peter, Paul and Mary and the freedom singers from the civil rights movement, all linking arms and singing, blowing in the wind. And we shall overcome with the whole crowd singing along with them. And that that was the image of that festival.
0: And the folk image is pretty safe there as well.
1: Yeah, no, it was a place where people went to, you know, hear the music they loved, be around people like them, and to get the strength to feel like, you know, if we all join together, we really can make a better world.
0: You also do a good job in your book, Dylan Goes Electric, of defining folk music, or at least the different types of folk music, Uh, neo-folk roots, uh, singer-songwriter. There is a real split between traditional folk artists and singer-songwriters. Well, that's really happening...
1: Right about this time, right about 64, 65. I mean, all the people who had come into folk music up till about 62 or 63, they would learn what they meant by folk music was old songs. And Dylan's a perfect example. I mean, his first album is old ballads, old blues, man of constant sorrow, the sort of thing Joan Baez sang. And even the people who were songwriters, people like Tom Paxton, knew a lot of those songs. But then, by 63, 64, people like Phil Oakes are starting to show up, who really don't know any folk music. He was a journalism major who was excited by the fact that he could turn that into songs. And he couldn't have played at a blues workshop or a hillbilly string band workshop, because he didn't do that. So, yeah, at that point, there's a real split happening.
0: And that caused...
1: clearly was the leading light of that.
0: Did that split alienate traditional folk lovers?
1: It's sort of hard to say whether it alienated. You know, I think a lot of people felt this isn't what we do, but yeah, it's fine. Um, In 65, that was beginning to tilt because so much of the audience was coming to hear the young songwriters. And I think some people on the traditional side were feeling like it was starting to swamp the festival. And so, yeah, there were a lot of people already getting irritated about that before Dylan then went on stage with an electric band and just sort of put the nail in the coffin.
0: I'm speaking with Elijah Wald. Let's play the controversial songs that were played at Newport Folk Festival. Now, to be clear, electric music had been played before at the Newport Folk Festival.
1: Yeah, there had been electric music, and that particular weekend had actually started with a concert where the highlight was the Chambers Brothers playing this blazing electric set. But the Chambers Brothers were black guys from Mississippi, and they were supposed to play loud electric music. That was part of their tradition. Alan Lomax, the most pure of the purists, jumped on stage after they finished and said how proud he was that Newport had finally acknowledged America's true modern folk music, rock and roll. But what Dylan was doing was something different. It wasn't, you know, we're all going to celebrate the tradition. It was, I'm going my own way.
0: Did Dylan Plant go electric when he arrived at Newport that weekend? No,
1: No, it was completely happenstance. It happened that the Butterfield Blues Band was there. It happened that they had just hired Michael Bloomfield as their lead guitarist, who had also just been the guitar player on Like a Rolling Stone, which Dylan had just recorded a month and a half earlier. And it just happened that Al Cooper, who was the organ player on Like a Rolling Stone, had come to the festival because he just enjoyed the so they pulled it together completely impromptu.
0: Well, let's listen to this impromptu performance by Bob Dylan. Here's two songs that he played on the night of...
1: Well, I called it the night that split the 60s.
0: The night that split the 60s. Here's Dylan at the Newport Folk Festival. Bob Dylan with Like a Rolling Stone at the Newport Folk Festival 1965. The night that split the 60s on the phone with me is Elijah Wald, who's the author of Dylan Goes Electric. He was booed after he played those songs. Paint that picture for us.
1: First of all, he was booed, but he was cheered much more loudly than he was booed. It's just that the cheering wasn't news. Okay. That night, it had started with the Butterfield Blues Band playing an electric blues set, but then there'd been a bunch of acoustic acts. The bluesman Mance Lipscomb, had gone up, um, Eric Von Schmidt, the usual sort of Newport things, and just before him was Cousin Emmy, a hillbilly banjo player and fiddler backed by the New Law City Ramblers. And then Bob Dylan comes on, and first of all, Newport was anti-star system. So this is, this is still the first half of the concert. Everybody is just supposed to pay, play 12, maybe 15 minutes. Except, like a Rolling Stone is on the radio, there are 17,000 people in the audience, and probably 5,000 of them are there because they want to hear Bob Dylan. So he goes out, he does his first song, Maggie's Farm. There was certainly some booing. Some cheering, and a lot of people just feeling utterly confused. Um, They'd never heard anything like that. It was incredibly loud. I mean, there'd never been a rock festival before. Nobody'd ever heard anything that loud sitting outside on a nice night in the summer. Um, And then he did two more songs and left the stage. And there were some people who were upset he'd played electric. There were thousands of people who were irate. That they'd come all this way to hear Bob Dylan, and he'd played three songs and left the stage, and that's when you really hear the incredible booing.
0: Bob Dylan came back on stage with a couple of acoustic songs. Uh, before I play those songs, though, uh, he also turned his back to the audience, which he never did before.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting thing because you know we, for the for fifty years since that night, we've been used to Bob Dylan walking on stage usually not saying a single word word to the audience, singing his songs, and walking off. So we think of that as who Dylan is. But he'd never done that before that night. Dylan had always been perky and friendly and fun and joking with the audience and chatting and filling all the spaces and smiley. And, you know, people at Newport, they'd all seen Dylan. They'd all been up close with him, most of them in smaller clubs or at workshops. And they thought of him as, you know, someone they knew, kind of their pal. And for a lot of them, it felt like he really was, I mean, he was, in fact, physically, a lot of them, by like, turning his back on them and facing the band and not talking to them. And a lot of people just felt profoundly alienated by that.
0: The Newport Folk Festival, 1965, was also uh, known for a couple of fights. Uh, one... <laughs> is uh, with Pete Seeger. Now, the rumor has it that he had an axe, and he was so upset that Dylan went electric that he was going to cut the cables with an axe. Now, that's not true, is it?
1: No, that's a legend, but it's a legend that all the different pieces were ready to go. I mean, Pete Seeger was known for chopping uh, logs with an axe on stage. Everybody knew he was good at that, and he, in fact, had done that at a workshop on, I think, Saturday morning. And he really, truly, legitimately was very, very upset with what Dylan was doing. He was upset that it was so loud. But he also felt that the music itself was destructive. Um, He didn't appreciate Maggie's Farm. He later said that he loved that song, and he later did love that song. But at the time, he's on record saying that he did not.
0: Well, it was hard to hear the lyrics. It was
1: also hard to hear the lyrics. But he also just felt that both Maggie's Farm and Like a Rolling Stone The message was essentially nihilist and rejection. Mm -hmm. And he felt like, you know, this was a moment where the civil rights movement was splintering, the Watts riots were about to happen, black power was going on, the Vietnam War was just starting. And he felt it was a moment where the music was desperately needed to keep people together and that Dylan was splitting them apart.
0: The other fight that occurred was between Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, and folklorist Alan Lomax, who did incredible work preserving all types of folk music. What was that fight about?
1: That's an interesting story, because the way almost everyone tells this story is that Alan Lomax, the purist, hated electric music. And nothing could be further from the truth. Alan Lomax was the first folklorist ever to record an electric group already back in the 1930s. And in in 1959, he had been in Europe for almost 10 years because of the McCarthy Red Scare. And he came back and hosted a Folk Song 59 concert at Carnegie Hall, where he presented Muddy Waters with an electric guitar and a doo-wop group. He actually wanted the Cadillacs, who had done the hit Speedoo. He ended up with a different group from Detroit. And he felt like the real folk music was what black kids, were singing, you know, in, in, in hallways in Harlem, not white college students playing banjos. So for him, electric music was great, but uh, he was hosting a blues workshop where he had put on what was probably, in some ways, the best blues lineup ever in terms of its variety. I mean, he included people like Bill Monroe in it as a blues player right alongside Sunhouse. House, And having done this whole workshop leading up to this history of blues, he had then been forced to include at the end the Butterfield Blues Band. And for him, the Butterfield Blues Band were some young white kids acting like blues musicians,
0: the man who had
1: discovered Muddy Waters. And if he was going to have a Chicago band, he wanted Muddy Waters or Buddy Guy, not a bunch of white kids. Alan gave this very slighting introduction saying, essentially, you've heard the greatest blues ever today. Now let's hear what these white boys can do. (laughs) So Albert Grossman, that's the story, right? Albert Grossman, who was the manager of Bob Dylan and of Peter, Paul and Mary, and who was about to sign on as the manager of the Butterfield Band, called him out, I think, quite appropriately. Uh, for the introduction, and Alan Lomax snapped back at him, and pretty soon the two of them were rolling on the ground and throwing punches at each other. And I have to say, everyone who was there remembers this with nothing but pleasure.
0: (laughs) I'm on the phone with Elijah Wald. His new book is called Dylan Goes Electric, Newport, Seeger, Dylan, and the Night That Split the 60s. And it did indeed split the 60s after the festival, Pete Seeger became the symbol of the old guard.
1: Yeah. Now, that was one of the realizations I had as I was working on this project, that everybody talks about it as the night where, where Dylan changed completely. But the fact is, Dylan had always been known as a rebel, and he had gone electric, as numerous people have pointed out, months before. He'd gone electric on—in uh, fact, in 1962, he'd done an electric single, Mixed Up Confusion, the person whose reputation really changed that night was Pete Seeger. He had always been considered a rebel, an iconoclast, the leader of, of a protest movement. And suddenly he became the old guard, the guard, the conservative, you know, the person standing in the way of youth and, and the present. And, you know, he, of course, kept being a political figure. He kept being a... It's it's so funny that, you know, in 1969, Dylan was on the Johnny Cash show, and Johnny Cash still couldn't get Seeger on because Seeger was too controversial. But in a lot of people's minds, that night is the night that Seeger became an old guy, somebody over 30.
0: Folk music, it's changed. And Bob Dylan went on tour after Newport, and he was consistently booed after that.
1: Not entirely consistently, but very okay. frequently. Yeah, I mean, his next gig after Newport was at Forest Hills in Queens.
0: How, I mean, has that happened before? What kind of artist tours and, no. and gets booed?
1: It had never happened before. And I think it's really important to understand how important that was for who we think of Dylan as being. Because a lot of people at Newport felt that he was selling out by going electric and was just trying to become a pop star. And the fact that he did that tour around the world getting booed at every other stop um, really made the case that, no, he isn't selling out. He's bravely going his own direction, and he's willing to take his chances to be an artist and do what he believes in. I think the booing was absolutely integral to how we think of Bob Dylan.
0: Elijah Wald, thank you so much for talking to us. I'm going to ask you one more thing before I play the songs that Dylan did as an encore at the Newport Folk Festival, what kind of impact did Dylan's writing have on the pop culture at the time?
1: Oh, it completely changed the way popular music lyrics have been ever since. And when he went electric, he brought all of the weight and the, you know, the fact that it was college kid music, music for intelligent people. That's what folk had been. And he brought all of that into rock. And ever since, rock has been that music. It's been the music of intelligent, forward-looking youth. And hip-hop, too. I mean, that whole idea that pop songs are not just I love my baby, my baby loves me. He changed all of that.
0: Elijah Wald, uh, this is one of my favorite versions of Mr. Tambourine Man because you hear the connection he has with the audience here. And also, is there significance in It's All Over Now, Baby Blue?
1: I think so. I think it was very much sort of saying, I'm, I'm going somewhere else now, guys. And then, you know, he and people were then yelling, everybody was yelling, sing tambourine man, sing tambourine man. So he sang tambourine men for them. But you have to remember, those were also the pop fans because the birds had just had a huge hit. And a lot of people, you know, they thought of that as a pop hit and were yelling for it that way. It's one of the reasons the folkies were so upset about the whole thing. Mm.
0: It's a fascinating read. I didn't live that time, but it was real nice experiencing it. You didn't by chance get to talk to Bob Dylan.
1: You know, I didn't even try because he has talked about this period and this incident so many times. I was much more interested to see how he talked about it in 1960 or 1970 than to talk with him 50 years later and and just, you know, get him to say the same story one more time, even if he'd been willing to do it, which he
0: probably wouldn't have been. Thank you so much, Elijah, for talking to us. Elijah Wald, author of Dylan Goes Electric. Here's a recording of Dylan's encore after he went electric on the main stage Saturday night. 50 years ago this week at the Newport Folk Festival, we listened to MC Peter Yarrow trying to calm down the crowd and find a guitar for Bob Dylan.
1: He's got to get he's got to get an acoustic guitar.